there's about 170 something billionaires in California. And they had about $706 billion in wealth in March of 2020 when COVID started. January of 2021, their wealth grew to 960 billion. Welcome once again to another edition of the Bitulation Room Podcast. Um, I am your host, Francesca Fiorentini. As always, you've seen me on that one thing, the one time that you forgot to record. And uh, just around, just around. I'm doing live comedy again, so I'll let you know about those shows. Very exciting. Also, frightening. (laughs) But we've got such a good show for you today. Thank you so much for being here. For those on YouTube, for those on Twitch, make sure you subscribe to this channel. Uh, Make sure you share the stream. Make sure you like it and push all the buttons. Click the little bell. Little bell lets you know that we're going live so you never miss a stream. If you're listening in the future... I feel you like I feel how you like to consume this show and I I appreciate you and thank you in advance for writing a five-star review. I read them all. Matter of fact, there was a critique of the show that I have lovingly incorporated now and you will see very soon how I have done so. Um, We've got such a great show, you guys. Not only do we have the show, uh, this show, we've got a bonus extra half hour for all the Patreon piggies because we love you so much. But Nato Green is here, you guys. I have seen and heard your cries for Mr. Green, and he is back. He Oh, he's back. And he's going to be on the bonus show, too. So very excited for that. Um, also, community organizer, civil rights attorney, political director for the Sanders 2020 campaign, Jane Kim, also a former San Francisco mayoral candidate. No big deal. Jane Kim is here. So excited to talk to her. We're going to talk all about California politics. What's up with this recall? Where's our Batman going? You know, like, what's going to happen? Will it be successful? Why does it cost $400 million? Yes, that's the price tag. Um, We're going to get into all of that. We've got some really good stories, including um, Mr. John McAfee, because you know I've been wanting to talk about this. Ah, this man. What a fellow. Um... So anyway, tuck in. So good you're here. If you're outdoors, congratulations. If you're at a restaurant eating alone, I see you. I like it. Um, and yeah, let's let's get into it. I have a lot of announcements before I bring in NATO. Um, one, obviously, bonus episode right after this. Patreon.com slash Bituation Room. That's how you become a patron. Five bucks, ten bucks gets you a shout out. Twenty bucks gets you access to a very special uh, AMA weekly or monthly AMA, excuse me. And this AMA will be happening Tuesday, June 29th at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. So send me your questions to bitiation at gmail.com or send them through the Patreon. I want to know. What do you want to know? What do you want to talk about? What's the story we didn't cover that you got questions about? Um, What else? I said I was going to be doing live comedy. I am. I'm going to be in San Diego the weekend, next weekend, July 2nd and 3rd, Friday, Saturday nights at the Madhouse. Uh, Matt Lieb and I are both going to be performing there. Um, They haven't put up the ticket link, so I I hope it's real. Um, Because otherwise, I just have a Facebook message to, um, to, to go off of. 
them's my receipts. But anyway, stay tuned for that. If you guys are in San Diego or in the San Diego area, would love to see you come out, you know? Uh, also, we will not be doing a show next Sunday, which I believe is July 4th, right? No show on July 4th. I want everyone to, you know, get drunk for America and light off, uh, you know, fireworks made in China. Um, but on July 8th, Thursday, July 8th, we will be doing a show in the middle of the day, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern with the Majority Report's Sam Cedar. That's right. That is Sam's day off. He's agreed to come on the show. So be there. It'll be good. Uh, I want to talk to him, obviously, about uh, his non-debate with Steven Crowder. That was hilarious. Um, so, yes, don't miss that next Thursday, July 8th. Or, yeah, no, the following Thursday, July 8th. Just July 8th. That's, that's the date. Um, also, finally, I think I'm going to be doing more regular streams during the week. So stay tuned for those. Um, they will be free to all. Uh, if you're a patron, obviously, you're just amazing anyway. Uh, but I'm going to figure out how to do more bo bonus content for you guys. But I'm going to be starting some midweek streams because, you know, I'm unemployed. Except for this. So that's what we're doing. Uh, and speaking of of the way the ways that you all support me this is a community supported show i want to thank everybody who has become a patron who's tipped the show who has uh, subscribed on twitch it's been a light week i'm not going to lie people are out people are enjoying their lives i support that to a degree but i want to thank you with a brand new song still from my boy kevin mcleod this is Neon Laser Horizon. Can we hear this? Not if you can hear me, Becca. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, huh. <laughs> Thank you to Daniel S. for upping your pledge to become a $10 patron, patron and get this shout out. Thank you. To the big tippers, Karen K coming at the last minute. I love you, Karen. You're so generous. And thank you to the new Twitch subs, Jen K6446, who subscribed for one month of tier one. Tylenol Jones, who subscribed with Prime. To Willie Gus, who uh, subscribed for two months of tier one. Uh, thank you so much. You've been subscribed for five months. You're the best. And now this song is too long, so. I'm just going to stop. <laughs> I wanted to stop it at a more opportune time. Are you happy, sir, who critiqued the fart song? Yes, it's childish. Do I care? Sort of. Is that why I changed it? Yeah. Is your son mad that I changed it? Probably, because he was the only one who enjoyed it, as you told me. Um, all right, you guys, let's get into this. Every week, we whine and bitch and moan because this is the Bituation Room. This is What Are You Bitching About? Okay, so I have a pretty... I was going to bitch about teenagers because they are the worst version of humans, uh, I've decided. and uh, But I can do that later. But um, I just found out before we I went live uh, that... I don't know if you guys know this, but I lived in Argentina for five years and uh, I talk about it frequently. Um, and I was my ex's grandfather, uh, Emilio, was a really big part of my life down there. This is an old ass man who was 
just the best, like uh, total anarchist, um, farther left than the Peronist party, critical of Eva Perón um, and and uh, uh, Juan Manuel Perón or Juan Domingo. What's his first name? What's his middle name? Um, because he was like, they worked with fascists. I don't, I don't like that, you know? <laughs> like, they provided cover for a lot of Nazis. Yeah, they had good social programs, but uh, I'm to the left of that. We would gather every week down there. We'd have pizza and um, beer and hang and red wine. I saw him through his 90th birthday, his 91st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th. His 100th birthday. His 102nd birthday, 2nd birthday. <laughs> which was just last December and today he passed away and he hated old people. He really did. He only made friends with young people, which is why we were so close. And he, he's just one of those old guys. We all know a few, all of my old people that I've admired in my life are all, they're all like old Italian anarchists, which makes sense. Shout out to Ralph DeGia who worked the War Resisters League with me in uh, in New York. But Emilio Lopez, te quiero mucho, te voy a extrañar. I really wish I could have seen you one last time. And and it wasn't too soon because you lived a fucking full-ass life. But um, you were wonderful. You were an inspiration. He was, a, he was an artist. He was a poet. Um, he worked for like 30 years at an advertising agency, like hand-drawing perfume bottles. Pretty, pretty amazing. Um, and he was a good, uh, yeah, a good grandfather, a good husband, um, and a good dad and a good friend. So I've poured a little, a little glass of Crown Royale, which is a very nice whiskey and he loved whiskey. So this one is, if you have got a glass, please raise it to Emilio Lopez, the Argentine anarchist grandpa who really enriched my life. And I love you. And I'm bitching about losing him, but he continues on. He lives on. So, gracias totales. And with that, I want to bring in my comedian guest for the hour and change. He's a comedian, a union organizer whose series Laughter Against the Machine can be found on Means TV. His comedy albums, The Whiteness Album and The NATO Green Party, are available on Bandcamp and everywhere. And he's still criminally unverified on Twitter, at Jack. Please welcome Mr. NATO Green. Mm. What up? Hey, buddy. Hi. Uh, do, you, do you need a minute? This is your no. Rondo. No, I'm good. I'm, uh, I, just, I just get a little misty. Yeah, I, I I like the way when you said when you said that he was an old ass man. Yeah, you, like it, I couldn't tell where the comma was, so, so it, <laughs> it, it came out like he was an old ass man. <laughs> <laughs> he, he he was probably an ass man. I don't know. We yeah. didn't get into that. Yeah, um, that would have been weird if you had. Would have been a little strange, although yeah. I did send him like the Marilyn Monroe singing "Happy Birthday" to to Kennedy for one yeah, of his birthdays. Sure. That was. You, you gotta, you know, you gotta, you gotta sort of poke fun at, at them. No, he was, he was a solid ass dude. You guys would have, if, if you had met him, he would have been like, he, first of all, immediately friends on Facebook and then stalk you forever and be like, NATO, here, look at this poem. NATO, look at this thing. Look at this. Anyway, there's a, there's only a few good old people on Facebook and we never hear about them. And I feel like we need to lift up the old boomers 
or older than boomers who are like actually doing good things on that platform. I, I also <laughs> like, I, like, I love, uh, uh, like, I, I, uh, the, like the old people in my Facebook who just like don't understand the sort of syntax of social media interaction. Yeah. So like, the, you know, they'll comment on a picture and it'll be like, dear NATO, what a lovely picture. Love Uncle Jeff or whatever. <laughs> you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> like we can tell it's your name is right there. That's yeah. how you comment. Yeah, right. Oh so. God. NATO, what are you bitching about now that I have gone so deep, but you know, still still happy, still celebrating a life. What are you bitching about this Sunday? It's been forever. The first thing I was gonna bitch about beyond teenagers was that it's been too long since you've been on the show. Uh sorry about that. Yeah. Um, uh, what am I bitching about? Well, you know, I mean, so uh, I haven't been sleeping well. Mm -hmm. And I think, and so partly it's just like getting older and like getting, like, like my, I mean, my family's in a different part of the country from me right now. And mm -hmm. so theoretically I could sleep in, except my prostate disagrees uh, or my bladder disagrees. Like, <laughs> like I've, I've reached the age in life where like, even if, even if I'm like, I'm going to, you know, when I was a younger person, I was like, I don't have shit to do. I'm going to sleep in until 10 AM. And like <laughs> now, you know, seven, seven thirty, it's just like, Oh, it's time to pee. And then I'm up, you know? <laughs> and you can't go back to bed. Uh, so, sometimes yes. Sometimes no, it depends, you know? So it's just like the, the the how aging is affecting my sleeping is is I'm not even that old but um, oh yeah it there is a the the Rubicon is when you have to pee in the middle of the night or like in the morning and then you're just up right that I think you've crossed it and I I've, I'm there yeah I'm like there was there was an age where I could like drink a lot and then go to sleep and sleep for ten hours <laughs> and now if I drink a lot and I go to sleep I have to get up and pee eleven <sighs> times. I, uh, when I drink and fall asleep, it's like I can get to sleep, but the moment, the literal moment I get sober, I'm awake. Does that happen to you where you're like, I'm drunk, 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 and I'm awake because I yeah. am the, the alcohol wore off right then. Now I'm just thirsty and mad. Um, we we got to get into this week, NATO. There's so much to talk about. I'm going to see if we can do it. Uh, for the things we're not talking about, if you guys uh, don't know, Eric Adams, former police officer, will most likely be the next mayor of New York City. Uh, does he even live there? We don't know. Uh, Trump had his first rally back uh, just in time to spread the Delta variant. So cheers on that. Uh, Kamala Harris goes to the border to directly tell migrants do not come. And the Supreme Court reverses a California rule that allows unions to recruit farm workers at their place of work. But for everything else, this is the week where... This was a week where the country got a glimpse of bipartisanship because bipartisanship is, of course, the Bigfoot of D.C. It's mostly a myth, hard to spot. But if you do catch a glimpse, it's probably not going to end well. Uh, but bipartisanship happened specifically around infrastructure. This was the week where Biden appeared alongside a handful of other centrists from either side of the aisle, or as I like to call them, 
Islists, uh, to announce that they have a plan for a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill that only includes $579 billion in new spending. Uh, it is a far cry from the $2.3 trillion Biden initially proposed, but he says he wants to pass the rest of the package, which includes things like money for health care, child care, higher education, more climate preparedness, through the process known as budget reconciliation, um, which only needs a simple majority to pass. Remember, um, what's basically happening, NATO, is that this is the political equivalent of like that puzzle with the fox and the goose and the bag of beans where like the farmer has to decide how to get all three across the river, but they, they like can't leave the fox and, you know, the goose in the same side. Like you can't just put the entire infrastructure package on the boat and you can't leave Mitch McConnell and childcare on one side, that kind of thing. Um, so that's not good for the children. <laughs> terrible for the children. So we're doing it. We're hauling, we're basically hauling ass in two trips as uh, as the old joke goes. Um, it's it, the whole yeah. thing is so like, you know, the, the debt, like the Democrats have, have a, have a case of premature capitulation. Like, they keep, you know, a as someone who is a professional negotiator, like it's infuriating <laughs> to watch the Democrats squander their leverage of just like bargaining against themselves to keep offering things to get Republican votes that then they don't get and then they don't pass anything anyway. And I still don't think this is going to pass, by the way. Like, and even if it did pass, it wouldn't be good. Like, first of all, uh, you know, that like people are like, oh, we need to pass this infrastructure bill of I understand that, the, like, we could stand to improve our infrastructure, but, uh, you know, I, ta I talk to a fair amount of people, I chat with people, and no one has ever been like, man, you know what's really bugging me? Uh, bridge maintenance. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, road repaving. That's that's the big problem that's really, like, harshing my vibe in this country right now. It's just, it's all so dumb. And then, and... It, but I also think that, that the thing about the infrastructure bill is that there's an interesting opportunity for liberals to like reckon with the like the limitations of our politics because we want to do stuff about climate change, mm. but we don't want to do it in a way that offends car owners. Like, right. you know, <laughs> totally. So, well, so, no, they like can't the pay any more for gas. Yeah, right. So, Not a know, cent more. Yeah, so it's like, well, yeah, we're going to do a lot about climate change but we're also gonna add 11 lanes to the freeway. Um, so, and though like you can't, it's not gonna work. Like I understand that, you know, it's not in, you know, climate change is not a thing of individual problems and it's big oil and there's major multinationals that have created the situation, but there is no climate adaptation without like not, you know, just like politically sucking the dicks of every car owner all the time. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it's the same sense. thing with the rich and like raising taxes. It's like, yeah, we can have everything we want, but we never have to raise taxes on the rich. And you're like, don't we though? Um, although we did speak with Stephanie Kelton who says we don't, which blew my mind. I'm still trying to like, I'm like that meme with the lady with all the mathematical problems around she her. Didn't, she didn't convince me. Mm? Shots fired. Shots fired. NATO destroys Stephanie Kelton. Yeah. Post it now. Um. Okay. So a little more uh, background. I I hear NATO your your cynicism, but Schumer and Pelosi are uh, are set on the idea that this will be a bipartisan bill, but then that will also pass more 
that extra however many trillions of dollars in budget reconciliation, provided that the parliamentarian has no problem with this. Um, Republicans are squeamish around the fact that these two bills would be in tandem, these two initiatives would be in tandem, as Biden said, because they think it means that he would veto their bipartisan bill that they don't even know if they're going to vote for. You see how that's would but they so they started backtracking because Biden said, Oh, we're gonna do these things in tandem, we'll do the reconciliation later, blah blah blah. They bristled, and then Biden, like a bridge in DC, caved and said he wouldn't veto the bill if he didn't have the reconciliation part attached. Um, and the response was like, Good doggy. So, this is Rob Portman from uh, Ohio. He's a senator who's a lead negotiator on this. And he said, I'm glad that they have now been delinked and we can move forward with the bipartisan bill. Republicans were glad to see them disconnected and now we can move forward. Do we think they're going to move forward? Like NATO saying, even if they pass this bipartisan bill, which is a stretch, but it seems like McConnell doesn't have a lot of reason not to, the fact that they're already assured the passage of that without the other stipulation of passing more, you know, more money in the reconciliation package. And that makes them happy. Like does that, that gives me no confidence. They're actually gonna, um, they're not going to do everything in their power to get mansion or cinema or somebody else to vote. No on that simple majority budget reconciliation stuff. No, they're going to do more than that, which is they're going to say, we're not going to vote for this is what's going to happen. Mm. They're, Republicans are going to say, and Manchin and Cinema are going to go along with it and Warner. And mm -hmm. they're going to say, we're not going to vote for the small horny for cars infrastructure bill <laughs> unless you agree not even to try reconciliation on the other thing. You know what I mean? Like they're not just they're not going to try. They're not going to stop at, at OK, we'll delink it. And if we lose, we lose on the other thing. Right. They're going to use the Democrats determination to get anything in order to leverage blocking the thing, what the stuff that we really need. I mean, in some ways, and Pelosi is basically saying the opposite. She's like, there ain't gonna be no uh, plan bipartisan bill. If there is no reconciliation, she said, ain't. And then she doubled down. She's like, I said, ain't yeah. like cool. Pelosi, when Nancy uses, you know, urban vernacular, you know, she means business. Um, but it's but I do feel like if it doesn't pass, it's kind of not the I mean, it's it's terrible. But it's also like. I feel like this is one where progressives could potentially walk away from if it isn't linked to more. I don't know. I'm not I'm not that cynical to say that we shouldn't pass something. But I also know that if they do anything, they're going to hold it over. Like, see, we went along with your your infrastructure. It's like, bitch, you use roads, too. What's your problem? Fucking fuck. Um, yeah. <laughs> Bernie, by the way, Bernie wants a $6 trillion package. Um, $6 trillion, which I'm like, hell yeah, go for it. Manchin said, of course, on reconciliation. If they think in reconciliation, I'm going to throw caution to the wind and go five to six trillion dollars when we can only afford one trillion or 1.5 trillion or maybe two trillion or maybe three or maybe four or maybe five or maybe six. Um, then I can't be there. Manchin said that was in an interview. So essentially he's saying you're going to have to earn, you're going to have to, as they always do, you're going to have to go down on me a few times before I'm going to vote with you. And uh, you know, Cup my balls. Okay, I'm done. I'm sorry. That was gross. That was disgusting and unnecessary. Uh, <laughs> <okay>. Let's move on. <laughs> Let's move on uh, away from infrastructure and towards something 
almost sadder, even though it's about pop culture. This was the week where Britney Spears told the judge and the world that she wants her conservatorship controlled by her father, Jamie Spears, to end without any conditions. Uh, Britney says she's been subjected to treatment akin to human trafficking. She can't see friends or go to AA meetings, and she wants to get married and have a family, but she has an IUD, and that the team of doctors who control her, apparently, will not let her remove that IUD. Listen to more of what she says. Um, this is the audio part of the audio from it. After I've lied and told the whole world I'm okay and I'm happy, it's a lie. I thought I just, maybe I said that enough. Maybe I might become happy because I've been in denial. I've been in shock. I am traumatized. You know, fake it till you make it. But now I'm telling you the truth, okay? I'm not happy. I can't sleep. I'm so angry, it's insane. And I'm depressed. I cry every day. And the reason I'm telling you this is because I don't think how the state of California can have all this written in the court documents from the time I showed up and do absolutely nothing. Just hire with my money another person to keep and keep my dad on board. Ma'am, my dad and anyone involved in this conservatorship and my management who played a huge role in punishing at me when I said, no, ma'am, they should be in jail. Wow. Okay. So she is basically talking about one of the themes throughout this is that, so it's like, even to get the conservatorship dropped, she um, has to like get checked over by a bunch of doctors and therapists, et cetera. And she's like, no, no more. Cause I literally, you, you, I jumped through every single hoop and I've talked to a million people with against my will about my state and I'm, I'm done with it. So it's a very different Britney. Um, and I, if you guys haven't seen the documentary Framing Britney, you definitely should. It's on YouTube. It's great. It's like an hour. Um, and a lot of people are jumping on the hashtag Free Britney. Uh, and including one sort of unlikely bandwagoner, which is Us Weekly. Us Weekly tweeted this, hashtag Free Britney with a bunch of photos from a rally, I think, in Los Angeles. Uh, to free Britney. Yeah. And uh, people on Twitter rightfully pointed out, um, Us Weekly, <laughs> you guys have been making billions from the downfall of Britney Spears. Here's just a sampling of the many magazine covers featuring Britney. Sick! Exclamation mark. Britney the Bridezilla! Exclamation mark. Help me! Britney out of control. Time bomb. Britney storms out. Did she betray him? I mean, it's endless. It's like, damn. People are calling out Us Weekly. Shit is real. Where, where, what kind of world do we live in when Us Weekly is getting canceled? Uh, cancel culture has <laughs> gone too far. Dude, this um, is the title of your new special. This Us is... Weekly is getting canceled? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I've been thinking that the title of my next album should be Old Man the Movement. but um, the, <laughs> the Old Man in the Movement? It's just Old Man the Movement. Um, oh. <laughs> so, Is that um, a bowel movement? Probably. Yeah, probably. Um, so the the people don't like, it's yes, of course, Free Britney. Like, I feel like people don't understand how insidious conservatorship is. And the mm -hmm. idea of conservatorship is that there are people who are, who are a threat to themselves or others who are unable to accept treatment. Yeah. And so 
in order to protect them from being a threat to themselves or others, they are involuntarily placed under control of someone else. Um, and like in San Francisco, we have politicians who are actively pr pr promoting conservatorship as a solution to homelessness. And people are like, yeah, look at this homeless people not accepting shelter. Uh, they need to be conserved. They didn't write Peace of Me or Toxic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they can't sell out the MGM grand. Like, come on, homeless people, dance a jig. Uh, wear some sparkle. Uh, if, you, if you don't want to be conserved, then we'll care about what's happening to you. So Ooh, that's very true. No, but but she has said, I mean, to her credit, it's not like she hasn't tried to draw a wedge in the in like they're the mentally ill people and the homeless and me like she's very much like conservatorships overall are fucked up. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if she's necessarily allying herself with sort of usually who is put under conservatorship, but at least she's not saying like. I'm normal, blah. She didn't even, she's basically like, look, I probably do need therapy, but I also agree, like therapy one isn't a reason for conservatorships. And number two, uh, I need to have control of my money. Um, right. But as long as you're talking about it, you know who should be conserved is Joe Manchin because he is a threat <laughs> to himself and others. Um, he's clearly not able to make, say, you know, rational decisions and, uh, and you know, needs to, needs to be, you know, I'm not saying he should he be executed. Be he's squaddled. Just needs, he just needs to be out of harm's way. Yeah, and I think I think we could just squaddle him, which is the is like shimmy him. It's the only way I could think of like mushing him into like a little sparkly leotard to dance, uh, like uh, toxic. You know, where right. he could just like squaddle his waddle, and then he could he, mansion should have a a residency in Vegas. It could be at Circus Circus. Oh my God, that's such a, such a dumb residency. The thought of uh, like, <laughs> I, I'm imagining Mansion. Like, do you remember that night we spent in Vegas? Um, when you and me, yeah, NATO yeah. and I did a union gig in Vegas. It was fun. We did a union gig, uh, uh, Frantifa. We did we did a show. <laughs> um, uh, they flew us out. They put us up. We did the gig. And then we were like, well, we have a night to kill in Vegas. Let's go fucking Vegas it up. Mm -hmm. And so uh, so then, like, you know, we were just wandering the strip and drinking and whatever. And, like, around 1 o'clock in the morning, things got real creepy. Like, people – do you remember? People were getting carried out of bars on stretchers. And then there were the buskers trying to get us to take the stretch limo to the uh, <laughs> This is such a funny club. This and is such were, a funny story. This is a long the, story. <laughs> I just remember the guy telling us about something about midgets and he was like, "Come on, man, you know, fucking release. Fucking release. You could do that. Fucking release the midgets." And <laughs> NATO, uh, NATO NATO keeps cuz this guy was like, "Come on, you can, you know, come into this limo. We go to the strip club and they're midgets and whatever." And NATO's like, "Sir, first of all, what are the working conditions of said yeah. said little people?" I and have um questions about the logistics. And number 2, what are, what are the little people for? And he was like, "You know, just like a uh, fucking release." And we were like just gaping mouth open like, "Are uh, you seriously saying no, that to us?" We're good on that, man. And so anyway, Joe Manchin, fucking release, circus, circus, <laughs> <laughs> October 2021. I think it's just release, no fuck. Yeah. Um, I love this. All right, we got to move on to something almost 
more bizarre than the thing that we just mentioned. This was the week where antivirus software billionaire and noted libertarian and likely murderer and man who used to pay women to doo-doo in his mouth. I mean, who among us? John McAfee was found dead by apparent suicide in a Spanish prison. McAfee was arrested at the Barcelona airport in October last year on a warrant issued by prosecutors in Tennessee for allegedly evading more than $4 million in taxes. The Securities and Exchange Commission also accused him of earning $23 million by making misleading and outright false recommendations for cryptocurrency investments. I didn't even know. You could go after someone for that. Um, hours before he was found dead, Spain's national court agreed to his extradition to the United States. But the decision was not final. Um, okay, so there's a lot of weird things about his death. Um, and they progressively... Okay, first of all, the weird things about his death are not as weird all of as the shit... <laughs> it, are all of them. And also not as weird as the shit that he did in life. Or the shit that was done to him. Um... So one of the things that's weird is that before he died months ago, he tweeted, uh, I am content in here from prison. I have friends. The food is good. All is well. Know that if I hang myself a la Epstein, it will be no fault of mine. What? <laughs> I feel like. I feel like that dude's going to hang himself. <laughs> like, 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 I know it's supposed to sound like, you know, if I'm found, like, you should say, if I'm found dead, know that it's no fault. Or like, or don't even say the other part. But him being like, if I hang myself with this particular tie on the night of June, you know, 24th or whatever, like, then it wasn't me. Um, okay, so that's not the weirdest thing. The other thing, after that, he got a tattoo in prison. Oh, crap. Oh, crap. I don't have it. Okay, so he got a tattoo in prison. Uh, that's fine. We don't need to see his arm. Um, with the word whacked, but like a, a dollar sign in front of the W, it just says whacked. Like, what? Like, he was whacked. Like, like the mafia whacked. Mm -hmm. Um I don't know. Maybe it was like his new like rapper name. He was going to have a whole life, but essentially he wanted to be the Epstein. He really did. And like, my question is in what world is he like Epstein? Okay. He doesn't have dirt on major politicians and businessmen. Like who would have a motive to kill John McAfee? Who would hate anti-viral software that much? Was it penis, the penis enlargement pop-up ad lobby or just, everyone's mom trying to close the many windows <laughs> that appear like all of us at some point in our lives probably wanted to kill John McAfee because of that. Um, My favorite thing uh, was that like, usually there wasn't the reaction when, as there is when some, any other people commit suicide. Like usually when a famous person commits suicide, there's just like you see a bunch of stuff on social media of like, just remember there's help out there, you know, yeah. tell people that you love them while they're around, you know, here's the suicide hotline, remember to reach out. Like there was none of that about this, you know, like it was like John Mc McAfee killed himself and everyone was just like, huh, all right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, 
<laughs> Doopy doo. No, well, he doesn't want to die in vain, clearly, um, because not only did he tweet all that stuff, trying to set himself up as the, like, you know, knockoff Epstein, but his Instagram account just posted an image of one letter. And I'm sure y'all can guess what letter that was. Just a Q. Just Q. Cool. Postmortem Q sending everyone uh, all the QAnons into a tizzy because it's been a little quiet over the last few months. Um, more on McAfee and then we have to move on. I just want to let you guys know there's a great documentary uh, called Gringo, The Dangerous Life of John McAfee. And in it, they discuss all of these, specifically his time in Belize in South America. Um one of the things that happened is that he probably killed his neighbor. So in 2012, Belizean authorities found McAfee's neighbor Gregory Fall lying face up in a pool of blood with an apparent gunshot wound on the upper rear part of his head. Fall had filed an official complaint against a software mogul for roguish behavior. McAfee remained the prime suspect of Fall's death and a judge ordered him to pay $25 million in 2019 after Fall's relatives filed a wrongful death suit. Um, a former employee, Allison Aldonizio, also accused McAfee of drugging and raping her. Cool, 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 cool. Great, great guy. Um, so that was in Belize. And there was one other detail because we referenced this. And I need you guys to look at this. I didn't believe it. But you can watch the doc. It's on Showtime. But he hired young women to perform sexual acts. I think they're sexual. I don't know. But basically, he would have them lie in a hammock. And then, well, I'll just let them tell it. He used to make you shit in his mouth. Like that. <laughs> I've never had to, done that before. And it was an experience for me. He puts his head under your butt and... He asked you to shit in his mouth and some. Did he ever have regular intercourse, like vaginal intercourse? No, no. None of that. That was the only thing I did. Mm. Oh my God. Now, I just want to say these women, I think, were paid. One of them was like, I was trying to put myself through school. And hopefully, although we don't know if he did anything else to them, which I wouldn't put past, but the man had a disgusting kink, very particular, Nato. Hammock poo. I would find it difficult to poo from a hammock. <laughs> I just think, you know what I mean? Like, I just don't think that, I don't think we appreciate the elegance of the design of the toilet seat enough. Uh... That like and how much a toilet seat is designed to optimize a pooping experience. Yeah, it's very difficult. Like you have, there's nothing stable there to like, yeah. you know. Would you hold onto the sides? I'd find it very difficult, especially right. under pressure. Yeah. <laughs> I just think it's really funny that these ladies are like, "Yes, I would shit in his mouth." <laughs> anyway. Welcome, Jane Kim. <laughs> anyway, welcome, community organizer. And no, uh, I, I want sorry, everyone Jane. to see <laughs> This is a dignified show. First of all, this show, I changed the fart song for this show. Yeah. And for Jane. No, 
Um, you guys, do with that what you will. No kink shaming, but the guy was a piece of shit. And that's fucking hilarious. I don't, I don't care. I will laugh at that in the middle, in the middle of the night, in my sleep, in my sleep. That's, I will laugh at that forever. Uh, all right, you guys, we got to move on. Um, she's a community organizer and civil rights attorney at lawyer or was at a uh, civil rights attorney at lawyers for Com committee for civil rights before serving on the San Francisco board of supervisors. She's a fierce affordable housing advocate. Her landmark initiatives include establishing a medical respite shelter for aging and sick homeless residents, making community college free for all SF residents and passing the strongest and most progressive minimum wage law in the nation. Most recently, she served as the National Regional and California Political Director for Bernie Sanders 2020. She's currently the Senior Advisor for Build Affordable Faster California and the Sanders Institute. Please welcome Jane Kim. Hi. Can you hear um, me? We can. Can you hear us? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry about that. Um, Jane... <laughs> It is so good to have you here. Thank you for making the time. I have been thinking about you during this week because of New York and what happened in the mayoral race there. And you um, went through your own mayoral race in the city of San Francisco that also used ranked choice voting. And so this is New York City's first time using ranked choice voting. It was very much a disorganized campaign season, to say the least, in New York. Um, and Eric Adams, arguably not a, definitely not a progressive, um, appears to be the victor. But a lot of people are like, how does ranked choice voting help progressives? I don't get it. You ran for mayor in 2018. Uh, ranked choice voting um, was in place. You ran alongside another progressive, Mark Leno, who ended up coming in within very uh, small percentage points of London Breed, uh, San Francisco's mayor. And you guys kind of campaigned almost together like a one-two slot. Just talk to me about rank choice and what you think the prospects for progressives to win in future elections could be. Mm -hmm. I think the big issue with the New York City mayoral primary is not rank choice voting. It's that they held it on June blah, blah, blah. Right. Who votes on that on that day? You know, yeah. we um, here in San Francisco, I mean, I know we like to always think of ourselves as more enlightened, but we do run our elections with congressional and presidential races. And that just increases turnout. So the big issue is when you hold standalone local elections that aren't tied to state and federal races, you're going to see a dramatic drop in turnout. There's about eight million residents in um, New York City, and I, I, I watched the early results, but it was like 800,000 people had voted. I mean, that's that's crazy, yeah. right? And that hurts progressives. Ranked choice voting is great. I, I'm a big fan of ranked choice voting. Um, and, and you know, it's really based on the data. And so what we saw in San Francisco was RCV was instituted in 2004, mm -hmm. right? And what we saw in previous elections where there was the general the runoff, Nato, do you remember those runoffs like in December? I do, I worked on them. Yeah, I mean, it was crazy. Like people were literally working through Thanksgiving, through the beginning of the winter holidays um, and the turnout would just drop, right? So yeah. literally the victor would win with like a few thousand votes, which is crazy that that many people would determine who their representative is. And, and what we saw consistently is that minus the 1999 and 2003 mayor race where the turnout did increase between November 
and the runoff because there's just so much excitement about Tom Amiano and Gonzalez. In every other race, turnout precipitously dropped between November and December. So if our goal is that as many people engage in election as possible, then RCV is the best way. But also making sure that you are syncing your elections with federal and state races is so important. Um, LA um, City, another great example, their city council races used to be in like March or May, just these random days, they would have like a 3% turnout in those LA city council races. So, you know, that's always gonna hurt progressives. That yeah. being said, um, you know, if you're on a really, really effective ground game and you're determining the universe of people that come out, you can sometimes play with that, right? But I, I think just overall, um, we've seen that Democrats and progressives do better when everyone votes. Yeah, absolutely. So you you feel like RCV was not, yeah, not a real piece of this. I mean, a lot of people are also like a lot of media outlets are like, well, progressives just can't win in New York and they want people of color who are moderates. And it's like, no, I don't know if that's the takeaway. Like that's Maya Wiley true. was very progressive. I mean, whether, whether you consider de Blasio progressive in execution, he ran on an unabashedly progressive agenda, right? Yes. Before anyone knew what he would be like as mayor and he won as a progressive. I don't think voters were like, oh, he's just saying that, right? <laughs> and then he's gonna become, you know, I, I don't even think we can call de Blasio a moderate, but um, I, I, so I disagree with that. Clearly progressives can win citywide. It is easier for progressives to win in smaller races because a, a really solid ground game can beat out more money in a smaller race. If you can door knock every door in your district, and we see this in San Francisco, and we frankly see this throughout the state of California, which we'll talk about as you talk about where is California headed. Um, I've seen progressive candidates consistently win in mm -hmm. smaller geography, and they beat out the candidate with money because they're able to knock on more doors. Yeah. Oh, one more thing I'll say about RCV though. It, it is true, you do have to run a public campaign with candidates endorsing each other. So Mark and I came out about a month early. We endorsed each other. We actually paid for ads um, signifying that we wanted our supporters to rank either of us one or two. Yeah. If you just hope that people can guess who the progressive candidates are, who the moderate candidates are, it just doesn't work that way. Voters don't operate like insiders. They're not like, oh yeah, these are the three that I'm supposed to pick between. You have to make it, you kind of have to put it on a platter and you have to have to you have to have the field campaign go out and do the same here. Here are the three candidates, put them in any order. These are the ones that are gonna fight for our communities. And I didn't see progressives do that in this round. And I, um, three different New York City mayoral candidates reached out to me and I advised three of the, their campaigns very, very early on. By really? The way. Early? Oh, wow. Very early. Some reached out to me in 2019 um, to ask me how we did RCV. People were just curious, right? And I mm -hmm. happily gave my time. Um, sometimes to the candidates directly, um, but people were scared. It is it is scary to endorse someone else in a race because when you do that, you kind of wonder if voters are like, oh, you're not good enough. But you know, I, I think we have to kind of get past that um, if we want RCV to work well for progressives. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I'll be honest, I have become over the years disillusioned with RCV um, mm. because in, you know, just based on my experience in San Francisco, because um, like, you know, I agree with you about what you're, what you're saying about turnout. I always, I, I have come to feel like if I, if it was up to me, the system would be like for local races, uh, 
we would have the first round in June or whatever, and then the runoff on the November election. Yeah. So that it would be locked into the whatever the state and the state primary cycle is. Because yeah. I'm open to that for the mayoral race. Yeah. That is the only race where the turnout increases with the, when there's only two candidates. But for board of supervisors, DA, city attorney, I mean, all of there, there's a huge drop off between the general and the runoff. But you're right. The mayoral race is the one race where the turnout does increase um, yeah. in the general. And the, but why are you so negative on, on RCV? Well, you know, because... Sorry to interrupt you. No, it's fine. I, this is this is uh, as as a heterosexual uh, cisgendered white guy. It is my form of reparations to never be offended when people interrupt me. Um, to never finish a sentence. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> I don't mind if people um, anybody can interrupt me. I don't care. Uh, so the because because voters are are ideologically incoherent. Like, or I mean, most people are, and so like that. There's that the idea that like before RCV in any election there's going to be some number of marginal candidates. Like there's somebody in every election, if you go back and look, there's some like, you know, there'll be the major candidates who are the most funded. And then there's going to be a handful of people who are, you know, maybe like 1% of votes are up for grabs. And there's just some weirdo who's like running on a platform of like, I want uh, better lighting at laundromats. or it's just something weird that's their pet issue. And, um, and like with that, and there, and there was statistical noise, but, because like suddenly this their second and third if it's a close race their second and third choice matters so i've seen campaigns where there's some marginal person who's like trying to negotiate political concessions mm. for their you know who like who would be irrelevant you know like you, we don't want to stop them from running but like like they're you know just like some like vanity wingnut candidate um and but they want like i want to you know i want to be um you know, I want to get the key to the city in exchange for saying that, you, that I endorse you for my second choice candidates. That's why I also feel like there's not enough information about like not ranking people like that. You don't have to rank, you know, um, and I feel like that started with like a little bit of Yang and a little bit of like don't rank Yang or Ann Adams. But like that came in like the the day of the election. <laughs> people were like progressives like don't rank Yang or Ann Adams like. I yeah, it's just I like just it works fine when there's when there's three or four candidates, but like you know, we've had these races, Jane, in San Francisco, where there's like 19 candidates, mm. you know, and and it takes 15 rounds of RCV before we know what the deal is, and like and then people who get 500 votes are suddenly deciding the fate of the future. You know, I just like that that part of it I find challenging. I don't think there's a perfect election system, and I think in every Damn single man. one. <laughs> there, there's just you're always gonna have to work uh, you know and i think progressives are always gonna be always gonna be working up against the system no matter what no matter what it is rcv not rcv there's always gonna be an issue and so i think i was leaned into well i i want to be in the race where the most people are voting not necessarily because that's the election that i have the best opportunity but i just just from a a level of principle i think that you know, we need to prioritize turnout so that mm -hmm. representation happens. But I, I think that there are challenges to any kind of election. So, you know, when moderates are all arguing about this and that, I'm just like, it doesn't matter. I mean, you guys have a ton of money. You know, you're always going to be running whatever game, <laughs> regardless of, you know, what, what whatever rules we put up. In fact, you know, one of the kind of more uh, humbling things maybe, you know, as a progressive 
and I was certainly one of those supervisors, I put forward more stringent um, ethics regulations during elections on campaign mm. finance, on advertising, on mailers. And what we found over the years is that all that happened is that all the grassroots progressive candidates were the ones that got dinged and fined when we looked at the Department of Ethics history because wow. they were the ones that couldn't afford the treasurers, the accountants, the lawyers, um, to figure out all the rules. They just got caught in the quagmire of all the rules that we had set up to protect um, the integrity of our elections. And, and by the Interesting. way, I mean, they were all done with good intention. And the candidates with more the most money, they had a barrage of consultants and attorneys and accountants that made sure that they figured a way around the rules, right? And not to say that those rules shouldn't be in place, but it's just an example of how important money is and ultimately how it is really worth the value of taxpayer dollars. It is it is a good investment on behalf of taxpayer dollars if all of our races were publicly financed. Yes. And candidates couldn't take money from anyone else. Then taxpayers would finally get truly represented by the people who were running because their campaigns would be funded by them. I, I really think that this is a great investment of um, taxpayer dollars. And I hope we talk about the wealth tax. You know, I am also similarly not convinced. But I, I have heard Stephanie talk about this. <laughs> the wealth oh. tax of not needing of not needing it. Um, well, okay, so what, yeah. let's let's talk about California politics a little bit more. And and we have a really generous super chat from Raul Davila. Thank you so much, who asks whether progressives will eventually be leaders of the Democratic Party since more are winning in safe Democratic strongholds like New York and California. Um, Pelosi from San Francisco, Schumer from New York, I think Raul is saying as the people who definitely need to be replaced potentially by more progressive contenders. Let's stick to California politics. Um, what are your, like, where do you see us going? You know, we obviously had, um, we have Diane Feinstein, whose own staff is saying that she is not necessarily equipped to finish and her term. <laughs> um, you know, you have Nancy Pelosi, who is, for better or worse, most oftentimes holding back, but like, you know, the Speaker of the House. Um, and then you have the California, I mean, I, that, that's nationally. But then here in our state Senate and our state legislature, you also have a lot of moderates and a lot of people who are bought off by like, let's say the real estate or the um, or or the fossil fuel industry, right? To be, to be totally frank. Um, I know that's a lot. I, there's not a specific question, but maybe ask about the progressive future in this state. Well, um, first of all, there's a lot of things to be disappointed by in California, right? Um, and in fact, 2020, I think a lot of pundits said that, you know, California is not as liberal as it is, that it's, you know, the election results was a gut check for liberals. I saw that in the New York Times because, you know, voters rejected affirmative action. They said no to closing corporate tax loopholes to fund public education. And they voted down very basic worker rights like healthcare and paid sick days for gig workers. Um, yeah. So all around um, did not look great for California. That being said, I think California is still moving to the left. A couple of things. One, 25 years ago in California, uh, we had a Republican governor. We were passing really hateful anti-immigration um, and of course anti-affirmative action bills and um, and super excessive tough on crime bills. You know, three mm. strikes and you're out. Um, now every state statewide elected official is a Democrat. Um, and we have a supermajority in our state legislature, although I think we forget about things like that because we haven't passed um, a wealth tax. We haven't 
ban fracking. Uh, we can't yes. even ban just new fracking permits. Forget the existing ones. We can't even ban new fracking permits, right? In fact, there are more fracking permits that were approved in Governor Gavin Newsom's first two years than you know in the previous kind of the years prior to that. Um, very basic police reform we were unable to pass last year. And every month we're fighting for the eviction moratorium, which I know that you want to bring up um, later today. Um, yeah. But, you know, um, rewind a couple of months to March 2020 and Senator Sanders resoundingly won the state of California. Um, you had mentioned I served as a California political director. We came in first place in 47 out of 53 congressional districts. And we didn't just win the more liberal Bay Area and L.A. counties. We we won everywhere. We won San Diego, Inland Empire, Northern California, you know, Central Valley. Uh, you did your you job, know, Jane. And, and <laughs> you can go back to the campaign and be like, I won. Look. <laughs> well, but let's talk about this, right? I mean, yes, Bloomberg spent more money than Senator Sanders. But outside of Bloomberg, we were the second best finance campaign in the state of California. And I don't think California, at least in my lifetime, has ever seen a progressive campaign well financed. Yeah. Right. And, and so all these ballot measures, I've always thought that they're really more a reflection of how much money was spent by each side than a reflection of California's political proclivity. And if you saw Prop 22, where I talked about how we lost basic labor rights for gig workers, the other side's $226 billion, I mean, million dollars, not billion, $226 million to win Still that race. Crazy. Is that yeah. a victory? Yes, it's, it is a victory in the sense that they beat down these protections but they spent over $200 million to do that because they knew that this was not a winning cause, right? Labor spent 20, 30 million NATO on Prop 22. I mean, that's crazy. And like, I mean, with Prop 22 in particular, it, like what was so different about it was it wasn't just that we were so massively outspent, but also that, uh, that it was the first campaign I've ever worked on I have 20 years of working on campaigns where one campaign had a like direct built. They started the campaign with a voter file, basically. Like they started the campaign with with right. direct access to the phones of everyone in California. Geez. We all had their apps on their phone, right? So they had direct access to us. That's right. Um, that was pretty outstanding. So a couple of things I'll just say. So in our exit polls, we, sh we saw that Sanders decisive won voters 45 and under. In fact, he won more voters 45 under than Biden, Bloomberg, and Klobuchar combined, mm. right? Um, and this is noteworthy because when Obama won California voters under 30 by five points in 2008, Sanders won the same exact demographic by 50 points in 2020, Yeah, right? And so then you also wanna look at California voters under 25. Three out of every four California voters under 25 is a person of color. 50% mm. come from immigrant and refugee backgrounds. So if we are willing to invest, it's gonna take investment. It's not gonna just happen. If we are willing to invest in the ground game over time, I think that we can continue moving on leftward. And again, Sanders campaign showed when a progressive campaign with an unabashedly redistributive economic agenda went to voters on the doors with millions of dollars. We spent millions of dollars every month in California, right? We can win. We just mm -hmm. need to be able to get our message to the voters because, frankly, mainstream media wasn't doing it. They were not. Ex they weren't explaining what Medicare for all was, right? No. Um, but when we went to the doors and we would talk to voters, who would be like, "Oh, I don't support Medicare for all," and then you explain what it was, they're like, "Oh, I support that," right? Yeah. I mean, so well, you know, if everyone watched this podcast, 
Right. Yes, or my my special on MSNBC that aired uh, in the dead of night on December twenty seventh. Um, yeah. Can, can uh, I ask? Uh, uh, yes. I just have a follow up question. So, Jane, a couple times you mentioned the importance of a ground game, and I, like I think you know, for people who don't live and breathe campaigns, it, that's a little bit it could, it's sort of mysterious how that works. Can you just describe a little bit about like mm -hmm. the kind of work that you all did in places like Fresno and Bakersfield and Stockton in uh, the Sanders yeah. campaign? I mean, in some ways, it's it's laughable because it's so simple. We we door knocked, which means that we had um, voter files right via PD, PDI and van, and we had thousands of volunteers going out into neighborhoods that historically had never been door knocked before. So we invested in electorals with very low turnout rates, uh, which is a big no no on campaigns. Actually, you always want to go to people that are definitely going to vote. But we we had enough money to do everybody. We didn't do as much advertising and mailers as Bloomberg did. But we literally went to doors and we knocked and we registered voters. Um, we got people to vote. And here in California, um, people can vote by mail and they can give you their ballot, mm -hmm. which is pretty extraordinary. So we were also, um, I was walking, so everyone had to door knock. I, I door knocked every weekend. So no, no matter how senior you were, everyone is expected to door knock. So I was going out on the weekends and we all had you know, competitions on how many ballots we could all get you know, each time we went out. Um, so it's a big, it's a big game of, it's a big game of education early on when you're door knocking, because you're trying to explain who the candidate is, you're trying to explain policy and agenda. Um, and then the second half of the campaign is just pure turnout. You're just trying to get people that you think will vote for your candidate out to vote. Right. Yeah. So I don't know, was that a pretty good description, NATO? Yeah. You and I've been doing it for 20 years. And um, I, I've I have, I have door knocked for you, cycle. in fact. <laughs> uh, to elect you multiple times. Yeah, full full disclosure. <laughs> yeah, I did a little ad for you and Mark Leno in I 2018. Remember. That was fun. Um, I, I do want to refocus on. Yeah, so good, so close. Ugh. Um, I do want to refocus on. Yeah, California politics. We have we have don't have that much time, but we have a. Uh, Sorry, just to backtrack, I feel like what you're saying is that the ground, the grassroots up is how we're going to get better representation than Feinstein and Pelosi, that it's going to take um, like more door knocking. I mean, more grassroots um, than than we've seen, I think. And, and there's a, it, it sounds I, like what you're saying is that you can't win elections without talking to the voters. Mm sucks it seems pretty complicated i well, you, you can't you can't you can't you well you technically could win elections without talking to voters but they're usually not our candidates unfortunately right Bloom, bloomberg um, did it but yeah i mean he didn't I, win but we but had that I fun like mention one more thing there was about 40 candidates that ran for city council transit board rent boards um, around the state of California that I tracked from um, the Bernie campaign that had come out for Senator Sanders in March. And I, I actually went around the state and door knocked for a lot of them. They were all, um, they are all outspent, but they all ran in pioneer races where again, they were able to door knock every door. Cause when you have a small geography, um, a campaign, even that has less money, you can, you, you can door knock every door, right? Um, and out of those 40 candidates, 30 of them won. Mm. And out of the 30 candidates, 30 were women of color, and every single one of the 30 was LGBT, a woman, um, or a person of color. And they all ran on the same campaign platform as a Senator Sanders, so Medicare for All, Green New Deal, Wealth Tax, et cetera. I, I thought that was, again, very promising. Um, when you can get to the doors, when you talk to people in person, you know, our candidates do win.
Yeah. Well, so scaling it is hard though. Yes. I mean, talking about it on a different level, on the uh, governorship level, we have, uh, you know, Gavin, who is facing a recall that might cost California something like $400 million, but I guess we've got budget surplus, even though I can't get my unemployment check. Um, but, no, but so what do you make, what do you make of this recall? And then we can talk about housing and eviction moratoriums and such, but just this recall stuff, does it have a chance of success? Do we have to go through with this? Will, um, will Caitlin succeed? Nato, you want to take a stab <laughs> at that first? I have a lot to say, but I want to hear Nato. Oh, I mean, I, uh, I think it's unlikely that Newsom is going to actually get recalled. I think the recall is going to happen. That's the current, I mean, that's what it looks like. And I mean, to some extent, it's, you know, I feel like there's a sort of creepy wave of recalls, like there's a recall and there it's really coming out of like the, the sort of wingy, like right wing sort of QAnon vibe. But like it's not mm -hmm. just Newsom, but there's also there are progressive reformer district attorneys in San Francisco and Los Angeles that are facing recall threats now. Like yes. it's become a thing of, of like the right to not just say like you know, we're going to, we're going to vote you out next time. Uh, and, or we're going to go to the ballot to block your agenda, but we're going to try to shut down the entire political system. Uh, so it's another feature of the current, I feel like the current crisis of our democracy. Yeah. That, that's my grouchy answer. And Randy economy need, needs to keep working. <laughs> the, the I'm very manager. grouchy about, I'm very grouchy about the recall because labor, which is probably the biggest funder for progressive um, campaigns and ballot measures is spending all of their 22 million 21, which means that we can't run something like a wealth tax um, in 2022, or it's rather it's much more, it's much more difficult to run one. And I'm annoyed because I, Gavin's gonna win this recall and um, we're just gonna spend millions of dollars to um, keep him there for literally one more year. Right. Yeah. And I think that's my big thing issue with the recall is that all these folks are putting these candidates on recall like a year before their term is up. Just, just give Ridiculous. them the four years and investor dollars and preventing their reelection the following year. Right. And, you know, the one thing I'll say is that, you know, no one did a good job during COVID-19. Let's just say that out loud. Like, yeah. what did we expect from our political leaders? We've never faced anything like this before. Jacinda and, and I'm not that people couldn't have done better. Right, I, you know, and there were definitely people that really skirted their duties, right, during COVID-19. But I would say the vast majority of our public health officials, our mayors, our governors, they did their best and we lost a lot of lives. It was um, really heartbreaking and political leaders had never faced anything like this before, right? So the stream of people wanting to recall everyone for doing a bad job during COVID, I mean, come on, right? I, mm -hmm. and that's kind of a little bit of my my opinion on that. But, you know, back to something back to 2022, you know, I think we've really lost the opportunity um, to fund some really important ballot measures. And I I know I keep wanting to come back to the wealth tax, but, um, you know, Assemblymember Alex Lee, who was another progressive win in November 2020, ran as a DSA candidate, um, surprisingly came in first place in his primary um, uh, uh, skated to the November 2020 election and is now introducing all of these super progressive bills at the state legislature. And by the way, 
there's about three super progressive legislatures out of 120 members of the state yeah. legislature. That is a big problem. And I want to make the California state legislature sexy. I want yes. more people to care about the state legislature than Congress because our California state legislature passes two to three times as many bills as Congress on any given year. And on most issues that we think about, sentencing reform, criminal justice, climate change, well, climate change is federal and state, um, you know, public education, um, frankly, access to reproductive health care. Most of this happens at the state level. It happens in 50 states across America. And the Republicans have already gotten that because they control the vast majority of state houses across yes. the country. And, and we need to do the same. And even though we have a super majority of Democrats on um, the California state legislature, the vast majority of them are business friendly, moderate Dems. And we, mm -hmm. we absolutely have to change that. So I want to see a justice Dems for the California state legislature. We can do better than three solidly progressive legislators at the state. But Alex Lee has introduced a wealth tax. Um, it's called ACA 8 AB 310. It's a constitutional amendment because actually our state constitution prevents us from taxing assets at more than 0.4%, which is crazy. So he has introduced a bill. It, um, we, use the same, we, we went to the same economist that Senator Warren um, went to for mm -hmm. her wealth tax. It's pretty identical. Um, except it's actually a, a lower tax rate. It's 1% on 50 million and above and 1.5% on 1 billion and above. And it will generate $22 um, billion for the state of California. And and I just- You know, know how many recalls we could pay I, for I, with that? Medicare for all, like tuition-free community yes. college. It wouldn't just yes. be San Francisco, right? Um, and you know, NATO, you said that you weren't convinced by Stephanie. I. I agree with Stephanie that we should be we should focus on closing all the loopholes. There are just way too many loopholes. And I actually remember I went to Seoul um, and I spoke to the local um, government there, and they were telling us about how they finally funded um, free lunch at their public school system. And they had a big debate about whether it should just be for low-income households or for everyone. At the end of the day, they decided, um, well, the wealthy pay more in tax anyway. So we'll just make it free for everyone. So it's not just for low-income students. Yeah, no means. And so I was like, oh, well, what's your highest tax rate? And there, I, I forget what it was, but something around 30%. And I was just like, oh, that's the same as the United States. And they just laughed at me for, like immediately. And they're like, yeah, but we don't have any loopholes. <laughs> so, <laughs> they yes, actually pay that. <laughs> that being, yeah, they actually pay their 30%. Uh, I, Jeff I Bezos, say... by the way, you saw... He, his true tax rate is 3.4%. Sorry, NATO. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I, 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 I agree. I definitely agree about closing loopholes. My skepticism about the modern monetary theory stuff is just that, like, the idea that, like, it's, like, because it's not politically feasible to tax the rich to fund the social goods that we need, we can we can create the money to fund the social goods that we need. Like, I think that the ruling class doesn't want us to have Medicare for all and a Green New Deal apart from the fact that they don't want to pay for it. And if there was a way to implement those things without them having to pay for it, they would still oppose it because they don't want people to have, uh, you know, they want people to have mm -hmm. a privatized market-dependent healthcare system. So I just, I just think it's not a solution to the basic political mm -hmm. problem that you still have to defeat the corporate powers that are controlling mm -hmm. our political system. Sure. And, 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 and that's also... A, that's a really good point, Nato. Actually, the point... Oh, I was just saying that California can't Wait, print its Francesca, own money. don't interrupt Jane when she's agreeing with me. Oh, my bad. So, there, oh, there's exceptions to when yeah. you can be interrupted. 
I was going to say NATO. I actually, when I served on the Board of Supervisors, I made a point of interrupting people sometimes as an Asian American woman. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I just, you know, that was my reparations. Uh, But uh, I was going to say, the reason that I was going to say is that um, it's different from you, NATO, although I really like what you had to say. We we do in this country, and certainly in California, we do a pretty good job of taxing income. Meaning if you are a wealthy doctor in the state of California, they do a pretty good job of taxing you. But if you are Mark Zuckerberg, if you're Elon Musk, if you're yes. Jeff Bezos, right? I mean, Jeff Bezos has an income of $80,000 a year. That is his reported income at Amazon. He is the wealthiest man in the world. He pays a federal and state income tax of, on his $80,000 a year. We're not actually taxing where his wealth actually lies, right? Which yeah. is an assets. And on top of that, he never has to sell his assets because he's constantly borrowing against yes. his assets. So the reason why I support a wealth tax um, is just that it's a more fair system. And I think, yeah. you know, I'm not a financial expert, but let's say 70 years ago, probably most Americans, including wealthy Americans, were making their money from income, right? That's just a guess, right? I know that to be true. But I would definitely say over the last 40 years, we have really shifted away from that. And now people are making um their wealth, their their wealth is not coming from their income. So if we just want a fair tax system, we should move to a wealth tax. And you know, we saw the ProPublica article. Jeff Bezos pays a true effective tax rate of three point four percent, and Warren Buffett, 0.1%. percent. Right. The average American pays fourteen percent. Um, again, the wealthy doctor pays thirty four percent. So just from a position of fairness, um, we need to institute a tax on wealth. I think that actually you have a really good, especially in California, where there are, you know, there is a lot of wealth. There are wealthy doctors. There's people in tech there that are very fine. There are people in Hollywood that are completely okay, but we're all they're always pitted against working class people as if they're going to be the next Bezos. But what that ProPublica article on tax evasion shows us is that they're they have way more in common with working people than they do, obviously, with Zuckerberg or any any other billionaires who live in California or who have wealth in California. And they should because I would if I made that money, like if I made like five hundred thousand a year, I'd be so mad that I was paying more money in taxes than fucking a billionaire. I'd be sh- livid but that's never framed them like that but i do think that california could have a really good chance of passing something like that because exactly of those folks who are sort of not middle income but upper uh upper middle class who are yeah being taxed fairly but yeah you know they're there's too much onus on them mm-hmm. um can i just say is, one more thing yes yes and this will be the last thing i'll do say it. no about the wealthy there's about 170 something billionaires in California. And they had about $706 billion in wealth in March of 2020 when COVID started. January of 2021, their wealth grew to 960 billion. So they grew 200 and, you know, they grew over $250 billion while 7 million Californians filed for unemployment. I mean, that's craziness. Okay, let's go yeah. to housing. No, no, that's, I mean, so, and, and you know, one of the biggest areas uh, of wealth is obviously in the real estate market, uh, very unequal at this point. Uh, people are at the, on the brink of eviction. There's been an extension of the eviction moratorium in California to sept- end of September with a possible additional six months for lower income tenants. Um, then this big announcement from Gavin Newsom about paying back rent, uh, back, back rent 
a hundred percent to the landlords who owed are owed by many many tenants throughout the state. What do you make of both of those? There's a there's a pretty large critique of um, of that back pay, saying essentially you're prioritizing landlords over tenants. But what are what are your thoughts on Gavin Newsom's um, attempt at recovery from the pandemic when it comes to housing? It's one of the like most frustrating things about all the recall stuff is that people are like scared to criticize Gavin Newsom when he does bad things uh, because they're, they're, they don't want to pay it, feed into the recall. And certainly the eviction stuff, you know, like I'm, I, I'm sure you are too, Jane. The people that I know who work in the Capitol and work on, on state level policy are like frustrated that they're supposed to like sit on the sideline while Newsom does something stupid around evictions. It's really been interesting to see this more socialist side of Governor Newsom and President Biden. Uh, it, in some ways, it feels like we kind of won um, in terms of the progressive agenda. Even if you know it's not President Bernie Sanders, there's a lot that's coming out of both executive offices that, you know, frankly, surprised me. It, it's not everything I want to see. I'm not saying it's you know what what President Sanders would be putting out because you already talked about the infrastructure. Um, proposals um, that differ between him and Biden. But I, I, I'm i frankly surprised by the social investments that they are both calling for in this time. And I mean, I, I, hope, I hope that it's an indication that progressives are winning um, the communications game and that um, Gavin understands that in order to beat back his recall, that he needs to be supporting the majority of Californians and not um, the few. That being said, um, he has been a big shill for real estate, um, as we've seen. And the fact that we have to fight every three months to extend the eviction moratorium and to fully fund um, the rent debt uh, was incredibly disheartening, given the stories of the tenants that we were hearing from and all the jobs that were lost to keep people safe. I mean, people literally stopped working so that people wouldn't die, yeah. right? I mean, that's why people weren't going to work. And, yeah. and and we have to support that. Absolutely. Do you, I mean, in terms of like, do you think we'll be okay through September or like, you know, if there's not a eviction moratorium, I mean, this is all happening. We remember obviously last year that like we couldn't even, California couldn't even pass the most minimal, um, uh, uh, blah, 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 what am I trying to say? Uh, rent control just the most minimal rent control we weren't able to do. And again, we've talked about how messed up NATO and I've talked a lot about how messed up the ballot system is in the state, but without rent control, it feels like we're still just plugging up these holes left by the pandemic. And we're not actually bracing ourselves for any kind of long-term future when it comes to housing justice and keeping people in their homes. I mean, one thing I will say is that Unfortunately, housing and real estate is not treated any differently from other industries, right? So the protections that we afford landowners are the same protections that we see afforded to oil and coal and frankly, all of the corporate industries that you see out there. Um, I think housing is a very different type of good mm -hmm. um, than most things that are sold in the supermarket, right? If anyone even still goes to the supermarket, I do. Um, it, housing is a form of security. It is um, wellness. It is, you know, it, it encourages your mental health, well-being. It allows kids to go to public to go to public schools and to go to college. I mean, 
housing is such an important good, but we don't protect housing um, at a different level. Um, and, and actually that is, you know, not true in other countries, right? I mean, we see countries in Asia and Europe where um, public housing, you know, may house 50% of their residents. And, and so when you, and, you know, it was really Reagan, he was the one to first start slashing HUD's budget, right, back in 1980. Well, it started with Nixon, but really uh, Reagan. And then Reagan, Bush, and Clinton slashed HUD's budget um, by 50%. And at the same time, uh, as HUD's budget went down, as government went out of the business of building and maintaining public housing, homelessness um, as a crisis in cities across the country rose. Mm -hmm. I, I, and there's literally a graph you can find where, like, you know, HUD funding goes goes down, homelessness goes up. You know, literally, we stop building subsidized housing, and and homelessness goes up. And, and why is that? Well, I, I've worked for an affordable housing organization. Folks that are working class, and now in San Francisco, middle class as well, simply do not pay enough in rent to cover the cost of the land, the construction, and maintenance of buildings. That, that's just it. You can't even break even on yeah. a lot of this affordable housing. It, it absolutely must be subsidized in order for people to have a place to live. Or, you know, the other thing we could do is just raise everyone's income level, right? income levels, right? In fact, it was really funny when tech companies would come to me, because uh, there were so many tech companies in my district when I served on the board of supervisors, they'd always be like, oh, homelessness is so horrible in San Francisco. What can we do to help? And my first answer was always pay your lowest paid workers more. Pay your janitors, <sighs> your security guards, your cafeteria workers more. Yes. Make them all W-2s. Take them off your, the contracting. Uh, and they are like, no, 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 that, that's not what we meant. Like, we just wanted to know what soup kitchen you thought was good for us to send 500 volunteers to on one day, once a year, you, oh, you, you know, gross. which is craziness. And it's like, your workers are actually sleeping in our shelters. Your workers are sleeping in their cars. Your workers are, are flooding our affordable housing waiting list, right? They are working for you. So if you want to address homelessness, raise their wages so they can afford to live here. Right. So, mm. so anyway, there's a, it's a two prong issue, right? One, we used to more adequately fund this, the subsidy of housing. Reagan, you know, really, you know, ended that by saying we need to make government smaller. Let the market take care of housing everyone. But what we found is that the market is good at, you know, I guess, housing those that are wealthy and upper middle class and maybe middle class in some parts of the country. But they, they certainly are not good at housing those that are working class and below, again, because the cost of housing is frankly more than what people can afford to pay. So um, I, we have to greatly invest publicly in housing and we need to reduce the wealth gap. Wealth tax, baby. Um, Jane, Kim, you are a dream come true for this podcast. Thank you for all of your wisdom. Um, thank you for all of your work. Uh, thank you for handing Bernie California. <laughs> I was and part of hundreds of people, by the way. No, so. no, no, no. Don't be modest. It was single-handedly you. No. Um, uh, no. I door knock every door in California. <laughs> exactly. You should see my shoes. Um, please come back. Share your wisdom uh, once again. And thanks for all of your the stuff that you're doing. We have to wrap because we went long and tis what it is. But everybody follow Jane on Twitter. Jane, what's your Twitter handle? It's at Jane Kim. Oh, there it is. 
follow Jane Kim at Jane Kim on Twitter and uh, stay tuned for all the wonderful things she's doing um, at the Sanders Institute and beyond. Uh, thank you so much. Take very good care. Good to see you, Jane. And NATO Green, we got a bonus episode to get to, so we had to forego our final segment, but we'll do it another week. Um, where can the people find your lovely work, Mr. NATO Green? Uh, at Mr. NATO Green on Instagram, NATO Green on Twitter. Uh, I have some comedy albums out. The best way to buy the albums to get your there's no Patreon, but the best way to support the comedy of NATO Green financially is to buy my albums on Bandcamp. The whitest yeah. album on Bandcamp. Do that. All right, everybody. And remember, we're going long. We got 20 more minutes or 30 or something coming at you, me and NATO, in five minutes. Patreon.com slash Bituation Room. That's where you can find us. And hey, guys, follow the Bituation Room on Twitter at Bituation Pod. Everybody follow, go over, follow the Twitter account. Shout out to Ellie Hoffman for doing such great work on that. Um, and thank you to everyone who works on the show. Becca Roofer, Max Inhoff, um, Ellie Hoffman, Alexandra Orns. Remember, we're here every Sunday except for July 4th. I will be doing more streaming. We got your AMA on Tuesday. Uh, and we've got a little bit more right after this. Become a patron right now. We're talking about Cuba vaccines. COVID-19 vaccines in Cuba. And we're talking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's new challenger. You don't want to miss her. She's fucking hilarious. All right, y'all. Fuck the patriarchy. Fight the power. And don't just bitch about it. Be about it, guys. See you soon.